you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So today is the third Sunday of the season of Advent, which is the season in the church calendar where we are called to prepare ourselves and to celebrate the coming of Christ, both his first coming as a helpless child in Bethlehem and the second coming, which we still await when he will arrive as a glorious and conquering king. It's a season that is marked by repentance and expectation. And today's text is one which puts expectation at the forefront. Three questions I think we should consider this morning as we look at this text. What do we expect of Christ and his kingdom? What does the world expect from Christ and his kingdom? And what should we expect as members of Christ's kingdom in the world? And I think the text gives us answers to all three of those questions. And the text begins with John the Baptist, whose expectations of Jesus and Jesus's ministry seem to be confused. And so it says, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 7 of the book of Luke, that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now this passage throughout church history has been the topic of much conversation and debate around this question of, was John the Baptist, this prophet who prepared the way for the coming of the Lord, for the the ministry of Jesus, was he doubting? Right? Was he experiencing doubt in his faith as to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah? And some have said yes, and some have said no. He wasn't doubting. He was more just confused as to what it was that was making up Jesus' ministry. What, the things that Jesus was doing were confusing to him. And so it was a question to, to kind of, it was a way of asking Jesus, why are you doing these things? And, and ultimately, I don't have an answer to this age-old question. Uh, but I also don't think that it really matters. Um, there, there are a few reasons for that. One, it is abundantly clear as we read throughout the text that, that John's doubts, if he has them, are not so consequential that he is walking away from faith in Christ as Jesus is upholding John as a faithful prophet and as the greatest man who was ever born of woman. Right, And so we can rest assured that John has not left the faith because he sent his messengers to ask Jesus a question. Um, and, and I think we, we have to learn from that. Because, because that if John, the, the prophet preparing the way for the Lord, can come to Jesus with doubts or confusion or questions, then that means that we too can come to God when we have doubts or when we are confused or, or when the things that we expected God to do in our hearts or in our midst or in the world around us aren't coming to pass and we don't understand, we can come to him with our doubts, with our confusion, with our unmet expectations, knowing that God will respond to us just as graciously as Jesus responds to John here in Luke chapter 7. That's good news for us. We can bring our doubts to the God of all knowledge because he's patient and he's kind. 
What is clear about John is that he expected something different from Jesus than the work that he was doing. So in verse 18, it says that that John's disciples had reported all these things to him, which means we need to ask ourselves, what things, right? And so if we begin reading backwards from Luke chapter 7, we will see the things, the things that Jesus has been saying and doing, things like this, showing kindness towards sinners and Gentiles, healing people of sickness and being lame and being deaf and being blind. He's casting out demons and he's raising the dead. So these are the things that are being reported to John that leads to John's question. Which means this was clearly not what John thought would characterize the ministry of Jesus as the Messiah. In chapter 3, we, we get a glimpse into what John imagined would characterize Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. He said that Jesus was going to come baptizing with the Spirit and with fire. And so I think what's happening here is that John is confused by what he perceives to be a lack of fire, a lack of fiery judgment. John is probably expecting that Jesus' ministry would be marked less by kindness towards sinners and more by judgment towards sinners, that it would be marked less by, by feasting with outsiders and members of the Roman governmental oppressive system on Israel and more marked by a political rebellion for the people of Israel to be freed from the oppression of Rome. Instead of this fiery judgment that John was probably expecting, Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors, he's healing the sick, he's caring for the poor, and and these are probably not things that John saw as problematic. They just weren't the things that he was probably expecting from the Messiah. Which leads to the question that that I think is at the root of what he asks. Is Jesus, where is the kingdom of God in your ministry? Where is the restoration of Israel and the judgment for sin? Where are those things? And, And this is how Christ responds. It says, In verses 21 through 23, it says, In that hour, he being Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so in his response, Jesus is calling to mind many of the prophetic writings about the coming of the Messiah, primarily from the book of Isaiah. These are writings that John would have been extremely familiar with. And so when Jesus says, my ministry is made up of healing the blind and and, and giving giving sight to the blind, to healing the deaf and, and raising up the dead, John would have thought, oh, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one who is to come. I am the Messiah. I am the one the prophets wrote about. But more than just telling John, I am the fulfillment of these prophecies. I I am the one that you've been awaiting. He's also telling John very clearly what the kingdom of God is like. The new kingdom that has arrived with Jesus that John had prepared all the people for 
is a kingdom of miraculous grace. Church, in God's kingdom, the blind see. The lame walk. The deaf hear. Lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. And the poor are given good news. See, John may have been surprised by Jesus' ministry, but I doubt that he was disappointed. Because what he was surprised by was the grace of God. He was surprised by the kindness and love and power of God to establish his kingdom in such gentle and lowly ways. And so Jesus is lovingly inviting John to be surprised by his grace. And he finishes doing so by calling to mind Isaiah chapter 8 when he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In Isaiah chapter 8, if you read the chapter, what you'll see is that God's people are facing judgment. God is sending the Assyrians, a Gentile army of pagans, to come and invade Israel as judgment on their sin. And this is what God tells Isaiah. He says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken." So in saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus is sending a message to John that John would have clearly understood. The message is this, be like Isaiah. The rest of Israel is rejecting me because I'm a friend of sinners and a healer of the sick instead of the political rebel they want me to be or a caretaker of a corrupt religious system that they desire me to be. Don't be like them, John. This is what the kingdom of God looks like no matter what people want it to look like or expect it to look like. The kingdom of God is bursting with all the miracles of life and love and don't miss it, John. Brothers, sisters, friends, don't miss it. Don't miss it. I wonder what you think of or what you imagine when you think of this concept of God's kingdom coming in power on earth. And I also wonder if the things of God's kingdom are the sort of things that mark our ministry in this neighborhood. Is God moving here in such a way that we are often surprised by his grace and redemption? Are the blind receiving their sight amongst us? Are the deaf beginning to hear Are the lame beginning to take up their mats to walk? Are the dead being raised, church? Do the poor receive good news in our midst? Do we, like Isaiah, fear the Lord and beg for his mercy? Or do we, like those that God warned against, fear all that our neighbors fear and seek the same remedies that they seek? Are we laboring for the true things of Christ or for some alternative kingdom that we have disguised and dressed up as gods. Now some of you are saying in your, 
in your hearts and in your heads, of course, Cole, we haven't seen the blind receive sight. We haven't seen paralyzed people start to walk in our congregation. Of course, we haven't seen any dead people resurrected. At least, not that I'm aware of. But, but if that is what you're saying, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Now, now of course, I, I believe that God has in the past and can in the present do these sorts of things. He can give sight to the blind. He can raise the dead. He can allow the deaf to hear. These are things that God is totally capable of. But in the Bible, the healing ministry of Jesus is not just about like cool stories of what he accomplished physically for one individual. Each act of healing is a proclamation about the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is establishing. So when the blind receive their sight, Christ is proclaiming to all the world that in relationship with him and those who were formerly blind to their sin or to the truth or to the reality of God's love are able to see those things and be radically changed. When the deaf hear, Christ is showing us that his presence and in his kingdom is where those who are closed off or unable to hear good news of forgiveness or God's love for them, begin to hear those things and take them in, be transformed and uplifted and restored to fullness of joy. The lame represent all who are weak and unsteady and unable to move themselves from one station to the next. Yet Jesus shows us by allowing the lame to walk that in his kingdom, all who are weak and unsteady and unable are the types of people that Christ gives strength to and stability to and grace to so that they can walk with Him in a life of flourishing and of service to others as they depend upon Him. The lepers are all who are impure and rejected and vile. Church, in God's kingdom, the impurities of sin are washed away in the blood of Christ such that people who were formerly detested and dangerous can now be called brothers and friends and sons. Good news for the poor certainly represents the materially poor, but also the poor in spirit. Those who are lowly and prone to fear and anxiety and sorrow those who are forced to beg and to be hungry. The kingdom of God is a refuge for these kinds of people because God not only desires to meet the physical needs of his beloved bride, but he also desires to make them rich participants of his love in hospitality for all eternity. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Church, the dead are raised among us. All who are dead in their sin and their trespasses against God are raised to walk in newness of life through faith in the sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Christ. In the kingdom of God, the souls of all who are hopeless and degenerate and depraved are able to be revived. And not just revived, but revived unto holiness and life everlasting, and a life of good works. So these are the things, church, that should mark our ministry together if it is Christ who is our King. 
If we expect anything less than these sorts of things, then we're selling God short. And if we expect anything different, woe to us because we're serving another God altogether. The church of God in Christ is the kingdom of God on earth. It's the vehicle through which we and all of our neighbors are invited to be surprised by the overwhelming grace that God has toward us as we utilize the spiritual gifts that he's given us to proclaim good news to all we encounter, both our brothers and sisters in our midst and our neighbors outside. Let's skip ahead to verse 31. Now that we've addressed the expectations that John had for the kingdom of God, let's address the expectations that the population at large had. Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus compares the people of the age to spoiled children. He quotes them saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. And in this little phrase, Jesus is addressing the expectations that society had on him and John and therefore the the expectations that the society had on the kingdom of God and all who proclaim it. See, John came onto the scene preaching repentance and judgment, and he walked in strict piety, marked by fasting and abstinence from drink. People weren't satisfied with this sort of prophet. John was too morose for them, too strange. His message was too harsh. He must have a demon. And then Jesus arrives eating and drinking, almost a total reversal of the ministry of John. But he was eating and drinking with sinners and with tax collectors. So they labeled him a partying fool. He certainly can't be a prophet or the savior. So in this quip about the children in the marketplace, Jesus is pointing out that the, the public refused to be satisfied by any form of behavior or lifestyle that didn't bend to their will. See, they wanted a kingdom of their own imagining, not of God. And yet, Jesus and John, though their ministries looked different, they had one important thing in common. They were captive to the Lord, to His will and His purposes, and they did not submit to any narrative or pleas or demands of the world around them. They operated instead out of deep conviction, out of real love and faith, and out of an understanding that their lives were about God and His kingdom and nothing else. Church, I want you to hear this. The world will play the flute for you and expect you to dance. And then, with the snap of a finger, it will sing a dirge and expect you to weep. But let me be clear. God's people respond to the music of the kingdom. We respond to the chorus 
of the angels and to the lullabies of our Heavenly Father, not the demands of a depraved society. We have to be deeply committed to the tenets of a kingdom that's marked by surprising and earth-shattering grace, regardless of what we are told to think or say or do. The children in this illustration demand compliance, and church, the world of sin today also demands compliance. It's important for us to know this because our world is, is marked by religious prescription. that are guised in a secular age. But they're strong and they're subversive. They're full of doctrines and rites of purity and righteousness and belonging. And they're all disguised at times, sometimes as unquestionable truths or as political convictions or as societal necessities or scientific certainties. Some will sing to you songs of fear and expect you to shudder. But whom shall we fear? Whom shall we fear if the Lord is for us and with us? And some will want you to be pure so that you can be welcomed into the temple of public acceptance. And they'll prescribe for you rites of purity, whether it's through diet or exercise or the right political convictions or the right medical choices or other seemingly innocuous lifestyle choices, preferences, aesthetics, clothes, dress, how you spend your time, what your hobbies are. These are the ways that you will be considered pure. And And the world will tell you that there's a stark line that marks the pure and the impure, the safe and the unsafe the ally and the enemy, the friend and the foe. But church, purity and unity come through one thing and one thing alone, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other remedy. Some will tell you to rejoice when self-proclaimed progress happens. But we rejoice as the good news of Christ advances knowing that true progress is found in the forgiveness of sins, in the redemption of things that are broken, and the freedom given to the captive. Some will tell you that that you should serve your needs and pursue your personal conceptions of happiness at all costs because this is true religion. But we will dance to the music of a kingdom that's marked by sacrifice, care for the vulnerable, and a willingness to be made nothing for the sake of redeeming love. And surely, church, some will be offended. They'll be offended by our disposition, more likely by the fruits of our ministry. Some will expect more or different things from those who claim to be God's people. Or they'll expect compliance to the doctrines of the age. But brothers and sisters, if we are responding to the music of Christ's love, then He will be proclaimed in all the earth. And all who are not offended, Christ says, will be blessed. And they'll be transformed by a God whose love is steadfast and by a God whose promises are sure. Isaiah 8 tells us that the God of all things is a stumbling block and a rock of offense but he's also a sanctuary. In other words, this 
this God who is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. He might be a rock, but he's the only solid rock upon which any man or woman or society can stand for all of eternity. John prepared the way for the solid rock. He did so by calling for repentance, devoting himself to piety, and being willing to suffer and considered a fool. His was a ministry of weeping to the dirge, but not to the dirge of the children in the marketplace, the dirge of God's sorrow over sin and death. And then Jesus' earthly ministry was marked by eating and drinking because he's the king, he's the bridegroom, and so his arrival calls for rejoicing. But his table of rejoicing was full of the lowly and the outcasts, the sinners, and even those who were likened to the children in the marketplace. In other words, his ministry was a ministry of dancing to the sweet sounds of redemption. Brothers and sisters, I think it's important for us to take note of both of these things because our ministry must embody both that of Jesus and John. We must weep and we must dance. We must fast and feast. On the one hand, we are called to prepare the way for the second coming of the King of all things. And in so doing, we have to call our neighbors to repentance. We have to call them to prepare through repentance and faith and baptism. And so we have to have lives that are marked by unwavering and serious obedience to the law of God and His purposes. But on the other hand, church, we are not without the presence of the King today. Nor are we without the fruit of His first coming. And and so Christ is here with us now. He's present with us in our bodies by His Spirit at the table, nourishing us, feeding us. He's speaking to us through His Word. He's actively encouraging and praying for us at the right hand of the Father. And so this calls for rejoicing. Our lives of ministry should be marked by eating and drinking and dancing and celebrating. But this sort of eating and drinking and celebrating should also consist of hospitality to those who are on the outside, to the blind and the deaf, to the lame and to the leper, to the poor, to all who are dead in their sin. And as we prepare for for the king to arrive a second time this Advent, we do so as those who dance to the tune of the heavens arriving on earth. And as we do that, all will be surprised by the grace of God in our midst. Church, where King Jesus is, true life is found. And so what should we expect as members of God's kingdom? Nothing short of miraculous redemption. As Christ reconciles all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth unto himself, for the glory of God and the good of all creation, and blessed are all who are not offended by Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your immeasurable love for us.
that you would send your son. That you would send your son to make a way for us to be participants in your household and in your kingdom, to be recipients of your love and of your grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would unite us to yourself so securely and so full of deep conviction and a beautiful vision of your kingdom coming that we would only dance to your music, that we would only respond to your song, and that we would be deaf to those of the world. Give us ears to hear our neighbors that we might love them and serve them, but let us not bend to their will, but rather invite them into something better. Father, would you make us this kind of people? pray this morning that we would be those who get to participate and witness the work of a king whose kingdom gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, power to the lame, life to those who are dead. And if there's a man or a woman or child in the room this morning who has yet to look upon Christ and see him as utterly beautiful and glorious and worthy and as the one who has come to bear their sin and shame and invite them into life, would you give them faith, Lord, and the confidence to feast at your table, not only this morning, but forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.